0: Well good morning everybody. Is this on? We are on. Okay, great. Um, Well, my name is Steve Green. I saw a couple visitors and so I'm not the guy that usually comes up here and and teaches. I'm not an elder, um, but I do get a chance to opportunity to sometimes uh, give a teaching uh, occasionally on a Sunday. And so I'm glad to be here. Um, I'm on staff here at Lion Lamb Church. I work primarily with college students and I always enjoy this opportunity. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, why don't you uh, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Um, and that's, I believe, two hundred page 279 in your pew Bibles, if that's what you're using. It's always helpful for me. Or 200 and... I'm in First Samuel, or 2 Samuel, sorry. Uh, 1 Samuel 17, 239 is the page. And while you're doing that, let me let me set the stage a little bit to what the book of... First uh, and Second Samuel is about. Um, we don't know who the author of First and Second Samuel are. Uh, we know that Samuel is one of the key figures in, the, in this book, especially he uh, passes away in chapter 25. Uh, but we do know that the very beginning of the first uh, book of First Samuel is all about Samuel. Um, his name is uh, Shamuel Shema, which is to hear Elohim, God, so God hears; it's an answer to prayer, and that's actually one of the reasons why uh, we we named our son Samuel, is we just thought in Hebrew, especially, it sounded just beautiful. Hey, Samuel, and also he's uh, an answer to prayer in my own sanctification in a lot of ways. So uh, he's been it's just great to have him. Um, So anyhow, um, we don't know who the author is. um, That's okay. There's there's actually a handful of books of we don't it isn't quite clear who the author is. Um, Samuel dies in 25. He may have composed uh, a large chunk of 1 Samuel and then maybe some of his followers or uh, students that uh, finished the rest of the book. Um, however, what we do know, and it's pretty clear as far as the thematic approach to First and 2 Samuel, is that this idea that God is reigning over history and he is going to put in, in uh, the monarchy of Israel who he wants to pick or who he wants. And at first... Uh, he, he puts the person that the people of God want, the Israelites want, in Saul. But ultimately, he's moving the story towards King David. And that's really the guy that comes into focus here in both First and Second Samuel. Uh, with that, let me pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and get started. Father God, I just ask that you would, Lord, that, um, that our hearts would, would long to know you more. And Father, uh, whether it be busyness or anxiety or worry, for some of us having a great day, uh, Lord, that in all those different seasons and feelings that we have, Lord, that this would be a time in which we come together to read your word, to study it, and Lord, in response, worship you as king over all. Father, would you show us through your word areas of uh, sin that we want to kind of chip away at and, and be sanctified in, and, and also areas, Lord, in which we may be encouraged. Father, we give you thanks for this church, for this, this, uh, the team of elders and deacons who serve over us. And Father, we're just uh, thankful that you've called us together as the body of this localized body of Christ here in this small place called Topeka, Kansas. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, don't judge me. Don't judge me too much, all right? So I have a hero, and his name was Hulk Hogan. There he is right there. There's Hulk Hogan. How many people respect for me just went down slightly? Yeah, way way too many hands. I wasn't expecting that many hands. Appreciate the honesty. So I'm going to go ahead and just uh, get off the stage right now. No, just kidding. Um, So this is Hulk Hogan. And he is ripping off his shirt. This was like uh, sort of the typical pose of what I remember, Hulk Hogan, as a childhood hero of mine. Yes, I was, I adored as a, did I mention I wasn't a believer then? wasn't a believer. Uh, But I adored Hulk Hogan. I mean, how could you not? He, He was six feet, nine inches tall, weighed well over 250 pounds. He was pure muscle. He had a killer mustache and long blonde hair. And he fought bad guys. He fought bad guys. And so I, I really enjoyed uh, watching professional wrestling growing up. Um, it was just something that I liked. I I, I didn't realize at the time that it was fake until a little later. Um, I actually thought it, I literally thought it was real. I was gullible. And what I loved about Hulk Hogan, at least at that time, was that he always stood up to the bad guys. He was strong in ways that I wasn't strong. He was bold and courageous in ways I wish that I could be bold and courageous. And, and, and I think that, does anybody else, did anybody else have a hero growing up? Maybe, maybe it was a superhero, maybe it was somebody. I'm sure some of us, whether they want to admit it or not, had heroes. And I think there's something in us that we long to have a hero in our life. And Hulk Hogan was mine. I was so enamored by Hulk Hogan. Uh, there was an injury that occurred. He, his, his nemesis, his villain, Hurricane Uh, supposedly put him in such, beat him up so badly that he was rushed to the hospital and was supposedly in life, sort of life care. And I remember on the screen they had a number, like, send cards and greetings to Hulk Hogan at this address. And my dad, he would vouch for this story. I was so moved that I sent him things that were special to me, which at the time I was a huge Royals fan, still am, and also a, a baseball trading card fan, and so I sent him my tops, was it 1987 rookie card of Bo Jackson my dad does not let me live that down right he was special and uh, to me he was again a lot of things that I wasn't he was my hero And, you know, we want that. We want, in some sense, a a, a sort of this existential longing for a hero, a savior, if you will. And you know the Israelites in this story, this this story that we all know about, David and Goliath, this one that we've heard countless times again, so much so that we kind of just skip it, don't we, in our quiet times or we read it without realizing, maybe taking a step back and saying, wait, who's really the hero in this story? The Israelites were looking at a hero and they got it in King Saul. And what we'll see today in this passage is that King Saul was a horrible hero. He was incredibly, incredibly unfaithful. And Israel and the Israelites, they'd struggle to remain faithful to God's promise to be their king and that he would always care for them. However, as we'll uh, as we'll see, uh, King Saul being a poor king when it matters most, I hope what we're able to do also... Also, is not look, our no- look down our noses at King Saul and the Israelites and their failure, but recognize that that temptation is in all of us, right? That sometimes we, we want to have a hero, right? It's almost passe at this point, but if, if you don't see it anymore in the, in the current political s- sort of landscape of the 2016 elections, I, I hope you do, right? Like people, they want a hero that's going to save them from the ills of this world that they see. And what we should see today is that people are going to be disappointing heroes. And while this is a tale of some sense of David's sort of courage and loyalty and faithfulness, what we have to remember is that we all struggle with finding the right hero because ultimately what God wants us to see is that he's the hero, that he's moving the story in his own purposes. And this is it. This is kind of the key theme here. Since God keeps his promise, we must remain faithful. We need a little bit more faithfulness in our lives, don't we? It's not just something we teach on once. It's something that we need every single day as as a reminder of being called to faithfulness. And so there's three points here that I'm going to go with in this passage, this narrative. We must avoid fearing people. Uh, We must trust his word. And we must believe that ultimately he, Jesus, God, is the Savior. What I'm going to do is different. I'm going to take each section as it's broken down, and I'm going to read that section and then talk about it and apply it and, and go from there and just do that from the three points that we have. Um, so that I, I will read the whole story. It's a good chunk, but um, it's, it's great. And so let me go ahead and start in uh, 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sakah, which belongs to Judah, in a camp between Sakah and Azekah in Ephes Damim, and Saul and the men of Israel gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew upon the line of battles against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his, ha- on his head. And he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And a shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, "'Why have you come out to draw uh, uh, draw up before battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul?' Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants in service. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephraite of Bethlehem and Judah, Uh, "'named Jesse, who had eight sons. "'In the days of Saul, "'the man was already old and advanced in years. "'The three oldest sons of Jesse "'had followed Saul to battle, "'and the names of his three sons "'who went into the battle were uh, Eliab, the firstborn, "'and the next to him, Abinabab, and the third, Shammah. "'David was the youngest. "'The three eldest followed Saul. "'But David went back and forth "'from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. "'For 40 days the Philistines came forward "'and took his stand morning and evening.'" And Jesse, to David, his son, said, Take for your brothers an an ephah ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. So here comes this this champion, this massive, massive man. And he stands before Israel and he... Chance, chance at them or uh, mocks them, right? But what I want to do even before here is I want to see that God, <clears throat> God's made some promises. He's been doing something here before this story, right? Just right before the the story in chapter sixteen, we see that God is going to anoint or anoints David to be His king. And the reason why He does that, as you see in chapter fifteen, is that the kingdom, the kingdom of God or of of Um, Israel, uh, at the hand of Saul, is going to be ripped out from underneath him. What happened? Well, um, this is the first point that we must avoid fearing people. Saul is told to go into battle. And he says, hey, Samus says, when you go out into battle, you're not to take anything for yourself, devote it all to destruction. And now that's a common phrase that's used in the Old Testament, especially in the Pentateuch and some of the historical books. That's a whole other sermon that we could get into. What does it mean to devote to destruction? But the point of it is is that you literally devote everything to destruction. And Saul, he's unfaithful. Often. He doesn't trust God. He doesn't do what God tells him to do. And so what does he do? He he keeps the king. He allows the king to survive. And all the good sort of uh, cattle and livestock and some of the good products, the spoils of war... Saul keeps for himself, and Samuel confronts him and says, "What What have you done?" And he's, and you know, Saul, in kind of that typical Saul style, is like, "Oh, I, you know, I know you wanted me to kill all this stuff, but there was some really, really nice cattle that I thought we could use to sacrifice at the temple, right?" He's kind of saving face in some sense, but it completely illustrates Saul's unfaithfulness. And so Samuel says, "God is going to rip your kingdom from out from underneath you, right?" And so it's, it's kind of setting up this stage. And, and the thing is, is that Saul was always kind of questionable, wasn't he? For instance, what tribe does Saul come from? Bethlehem, or excuse me, Benjamin, or the Benjamites. But we see in Genesis, in chapter 49, in verse 10, where Jacob is blessing his 12 sons, he says this to the tribe of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff between his feet. So what's going on there? God's giving Israel the king they always wanted, right? It says that in some of the earlier pages of of 1 Samuel, that that Saul has all the outward appearances of a potent king. He's he's good-looking. He uh, comes from a pretty wealthy family. He stands literally head and shoulders above all of Israel. And so the people are thinking, this is our guy. He's going to fight our battles. He's going to lead us into prominence. And we're, we're going to get behind this guy. He's our hero. But we get to chapter 17, and what's Saul doing? He's scared, he's afraid. The same guy that has seen the Lord bring victory for his own kingdom and has had the spirit rest upon him to the point where he's prophesying, he's scared of a man. And this man, Goliath, comes out day in and day out for 40 days and says, I defy the armies of the living God. He's unfaithful. Goliath was a champion warrior. He stood about nine feet, nine inches tall. There's some notes in your Bible where you can get a sense of how much his armor weighed. He was a massive man. And, and just a historical note that's important. When a, when a soldier or somebody, a warrior, would come out and defy and say that I would defy the armies of, of your, your, your armies, he's basically saying, my God is better, or God's is better, more powerful, more potent than your own God. Goliath isn't just defying Israel, he's defying the very Lord of all. Goliath is claiming the Israelites' God is too weak, is too incompetent, is not powerful enough to do anything about him. The text doesn't say, of course, but I can just imagine for a moment that, you know, upon hearing this, maybe some of the guys, maybe some of them, it says that Israel was greatly afraid, maybe just a few. They hear Goliath and be like, Bring it on. We got Saul. And I've, I've been the battle with Saul, and I've seen what he's done, and he's tall, and he's good-looking, and he's athletic, and he's going to take him down. Right, Saul? And Saul's there, cowering, fearful, afraid. Even the best heroes let us down, don't they? See, the problem with Saul and the Israelites is that they feared the wrong thing. They feared the wrong person. Who should they have ultimately been fearing? the Lord. He's the one that brought them out of Egypt. He's the one that has constantly delivered them from his enemies, which reminds me of a great verse in Isaiah 22. 22. I hope if you haven't yet, you'd consider committing this verse to either memory or just um, something that you go to regularly. I use this a lot in discipleship with students that I that I work with, because anxiety and fear often cripple them to the point where they're not even to able be able to faithfully live as a Christian in the in the academic circle. Right? They're constantly bombarded with sort of compromising their faithfulness. To they're so scared of getting a, a, a B that they'll they'll cheat. They'll compromise their academics uh, so that they can get an A. And so this verse in two twenty two is this Judah constantly afraid and unfaithful. They're uh, getting ready to go into exile. There's the two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And and the Lord, through Isaiah, is telling them about future days in which the Lord will bring upon the land, in which the nations will come to Mount Zion, and then the day of the Lord will come, and God bringing his judgment on mankind, uh, people will respond, and they'll start to get rid of their idols. Finally, all peoples. And this is what the Lord says in verse 22. Stop regarding man whose nostril is breath. For what account is he? How much does that help? In just reassuring ourselves of the type of God that we serve. Why do you scare? Why are you fearful of men? You hold their breath long enough, and they're out. Just seconds. Maybe for some a few minutes, but that we're such fragile people, aren't we? Why do you fear them and not God Himself? Why didn't Saul? fear God and instead was fearful of this Goliath. And just like the king goes, so often the case, so does Israel go as well. And they're fear, fearful that God is faithful to his children. And so here's the thing I think we can just take away from this first section is that we have to fear the wrong thing. Or we have to, we have to fear the right thing, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all understanding. Fear of the Lord is talked about over and over again in the Bible in such a positive light. It's the place of understanding. It's the place of knowledge. It appropriately places our perspectives in sort of the right framework, right? God is the creator overall. So let me ask you this question. If you're faced with something that makes you anxious, causes you to be worried or afraid, and this is, this is my own struggle. This isn't something I've mastered. But just taking a step back and, a, a back and asking, and what am I basing this feeling on? Well, why, why am I fearful? Do, do you not know that God, looking back, and we'll talk about this, has, has provided and has been faithful to you and to his people? Am I allowing my fear to cloud or doubt God's goodness and faithfulness to me in my life? Or do I believe that God is bigger and mightier than what I'm faced with? So that's the first point. And there's a great book called uh, When People Are Big and God Is Not by Ed Welch. I'd highly recommend it for those that might feel like that could be a a point of encouragement. But there's a second point here, and it's this. Not only we must avoid fearing people, we must trust God's word. Uh, Jesse, who has eight sons, sends Davis, the smallest of the youngest of the eight, to bring provisions to his brothers serving in the army of Israel. This is a picture of the Valley of Elah. You can see kind of where the Israelites would have, um, would have been camping and also the Philistines. It, it was a sort of a valley that ran east-west. So that really gives us a great picture of kind of what was going on. And, and as you can imagine, David coming in from the fields, bringing this food for, for his brothers by uh, the word of his father, Jesse. He's coming in and he's seeing the sight. And while everybody is fearful, David's not. David responds differently, doesn't he? Let's read that section right now. Now Saul, and the in verse 19, Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the thanes in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from them and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now, I I think that's interesting that David never really talks about the wealth and material gain that he's going to get for slaying Goliath. It's all about his love for the Lord and wanting to make sure that his name, the Lord's name, will no longer be profaned. And when the words that David spoke were had in verse 31, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him for you are but a youth and he has been a man of war from his youth. And so what happens is David sort of, he he sort of pleads with Saul to let him go and you're going to see that Saul's like, go at the very end, go and the Lord be with you. Could you imagine Saul for a moment hearing about this guy? David's like, hey Saul, there's a guy coming. He's our guy, he's going to fight. And Saul's excited and it's David walking in with shepherd's clothing, coming in from the field, a youth. He says, he says, you are just a youth. Goliath has been a warrior from youth. The, the point is, it's like, what, what are you doing? You, you can't win against Goliath. But David knows that Goliath has made a fatal mistake, hasn't he? And I think, too, and this is the other point, that David also knows the promises that God has made to him in the prior chapter. It says in six, or chapter 16 that he's been anointed king. If he's anointed king and he hasn't established his monarchy yet, then surely David knows that God is going to deliver on his promises, right? Right? And so much, so, so much of what the Scripture wants us to see in the narratives is this idea of trusting God's word, not only just trusting it as the complete sixty-six books of the Bible, but also just trusting the promises that God makes to His people. In Genesis twenty-two, we see that what's called the Binding of Isaac. It's it's one of the, another famous story in Scripture in which Abraham takes his child, his only child, who is the promised child, and follows the Lord's command to sacrifice him, and he does. But here's the interesting part. Before he does that, Abraham says, hey, we'll return. And some people have, have kind of said, well, he just, he's lying to them, you know, because if he told them what they were really doing, they would bound, you know, bind him up and stop him, right? I actually believe that Abraham believed that God was going to stop, intervene, or bring back Ab- or Isaac to life. No matter how hard it is for us to wrap around our minds around that passage, I really do believe that Abraham trusted God's word, right? He had seen, he knew Isaac, right, was this child of promise, the special promise that God had made to him. Because it says in Genesis 12 that Abraham and his wife were, were old and advanced in years, and his wife, Sarah, could not have children. And yet here that promise stands, Abraham trusted god 's Word, and I believe David trusted god 's Word, knowing that God could not do any could not break his promises and, and friends that 's something that we have to think about in our own lives today that God promises to be with his people, and we 'll see that especially in the Great Commission. But do we trust god 's word? We live in an age of skepticism. I remember having a conversation with some family in St. Louis around the table. And we were talking about marriage and as far as a biblical response to marriage. And they said, well, you know, Steve, that's never a good sign when they say that. Like, they're getting ready to tell me something. You know, Steve, the Bible was written thousands of years ago. Nobody really expected them to live up into their 60s and 70s and 80s. So that whole thing about marriage, people change. Now, this is somebody that had left their spouse, right? People change. Surely God doesn't expect us to follow that old sort of archaic book, right? Uh, yeah, yes, he does. And, you know, and, and also there's a guy named Adam and Abraham and others that lived well beyond you know, 90 years, decades old. And so, of course, he wants us to trust his word. And, and that's the thing. We're often, we're often called out to compromise, to doubt, right? In this age of skepticism, to trust, to not trust God's word. And friends, it, it is so important in this age especially in which truth is just sort of eroding around us that we stand firm. We stand firm. Just like David did in the, in the light of danger. So, so friends, we, we need to stand firm and sort of upholding truth. And one way we can do, about, do this, there's a lot of ways that you can apply this. But really, it's not only just reading the Bible, it's talking about the Bible. Like, how many times do you feel encouraged? How many times do you walk away from a conversation with a fellow brother and sister in Christ about God's Word and say, man, I was not encouraged by that at all? Rarely, right? How many times do you, you talk about Scripture, what God's doing in your life, how is He uh, working and, and talking about the, the sort of the great promises of God and how much you leave from that strengthened? Almost all the time. At least I do. And so one thing that we can do it, as, as a church, is talk about Scripture. This would be a good plug in some sense for a small group, wouldn't it? We could be in a small group. We could be knitted in a community. We could, we could talk about Scripture with our children and to our children and for our children, with our family, with our friends. Or just this idea that we might talk about God's Word would help steal sort of our faith, our trust in God's Word itself. But that's what I want us to see is that, that David trusted God God's word his promises to him And so this third sort of point and this is sort of the climax of the whole story is as 38 and 58 we must believe that only he saves Let me read those last 20 verses I'm going to take a drink of water <clears throat> It says in 38, then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet on, of bronze on his head and clothed them with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff and his hands and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch. Now, a quick side I've actually been to that brook, I've been to Israel. And they actually let you take five smooth stones. That brook is just littered with smooth stones. And a few years ago, uh, I gave one to Dan Billen, and he told me that he had found out doing some research that the uh, Department of Tourism in Israel actually dumps loads of smooth stones in that brook (laughs) so that people can get a little keepsake. So I was like, ah, this is it. This is the stone he used. Nope, nope, totally shipped in. So (laughs) little... Little aside to that passage. So he takes those smooth stones, puts them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David, with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give you flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand." That almost preaches for itself, doesn't it? And when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, and David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with his sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out in its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath at the gates of Ekron. So that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shireem as far as Gath and Ekron. I'll stop right there. How do you think you are, Goliath? You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And it's here that we often focus the story of David and Goliath, and you've probably heard these tales. They're good moral teachings, some might say. Be like David. Be courageous in ways that others aren't courageous. Be brave in ways that others aren't uh, aren't brave. Be faithful and trust in ways that we don't we fail to trust. But we'd be missing the point of the story, the whole story, if that was the main takeaway from this passage. How did David kill Goliath with a stone? Does that not seem odd to anybody else? Does that seem short of remarkable? Nothing short of remarkable? Absolutely. It even says that he didn't have a sword in his hand. It's like the narrator is like, yeah, he really killed him with the stone. There was no sword in his hand. It was so remarkable that you'd almost say that there was something, there was an actor, there was a hero behind the story, wasn't there? The Lord. The Lord will not stand for others to defy His name. He will vindicate Himself. Salvation is from the Lord. Justice is the Lord's alone. And so often, don't we want justice for ourselves? Don't we want to think that we can sort of achieve salvation? Or we want to put our hopes and place our trust in the wrong things? And here's the thing that the story is going for it says, You need a hero. And people think David's the guy. The Philistines are, are, are fleeing, and they, they make David eventually the king. And we get to 2 Samuel, and what happens? David falls. He blows it big time, doesn't he? He murders a man whose wife he slept with. Interesting enough, he is supposed to be out in battle, and he sends his troops just like what Saul did. But the point is, is that all good men will fail. All good men fail. The, 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 the thing is is that men cannot save. We cannot save. Thanes cannot save. Only God can save. We need a hero, and that hero is King Jesus. It's King Jesus. right? He fights death itself and conquers it. David was a shepherd who kept, kept his sheep safe from wolves. Jesus says in John's gospel, I lay down my life for my sheep. That's the savior we need to look at. Friends, that's the hero. God's the hero. That is the cure. In some sense, the remedy for our struggles with doubt and with not trusting and with fear is remembering that God rules over all things, that only he can save and last point here, the Philistines appear to be full of confidence when, they, when David's approaching Goliath, don't they? Maybe. I would think so. I'd say we have pretty good odds. It'd be like uh, if you're a KU fan, and I'm a KU fan, and you watch KU go and take on Bucknell, you're like, this is going to work out pretty well for us. And then they get beat, right? They get upset. And so while they have confidence and boldness at first, it's who is chasing after who at the end. It's the Israelites chasing after the Philistines who are fleeing, who are running for their lives. Because king their king David, the rightful king has defeated their enemies and friends. If they're bold and they're courageous, how much more how much more boldness and courage and faithfulness can we have knowing that our king has conquered the gates of hell itself? That King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus, who rules over all and has been given all power and authority, looks at us from heaven and says, Barb, Mark, Phil, surely I will be with you always until the end of the age. Jesus is our hero and our Savior. Jesus is our King. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you that we can gather together as the body of Christ to bow at the foot of our King Jesus. Lord, help us to worship you now in spirit and in truth that your word is true and that you are moving through your people so that we might testify to that truth. Lord, help us not to set aside our faith just for a Sunday morning, Lord, but let us be so encouraged by your word and what you're doing that we would go and testify to the truth and the various spheres in which you've called us. Lord, we're thankful that we serve a king, a resurrected king who sits at your right hand. It's in his name we pray. Amen.